Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. If you have your copy of God's Word, you can turn with me to 1 Corinthians 7. We're looking again this week at verses 8 to 16, and we want to finish out the section where we began last Sunday. This chapter begins with Paul's words in verse 1, and he says, Now concerning the things which you wrote, um, and uh, that phrase is used um, throughout the book, uh, again, in chapter 7, verse 25, he says it in chapter 8, verse 1, again in chapter 12, verse 1, and again in chapter 16, a couple times. So basically, the Corinthians had written Paul, and they had a handful of important questions, and what they received back from Paul is this letter, particularly the back half of this letter in chapter 7 to 16. Um, you could think of these chapters as a Holy Spirit-inspired Q&A. And these are the issues they had questions about. They, these were the issues they needed answers to. And Paul wrote back to them with pastoral love and with wisdom, and he wants them to know how to think about these things, and he wants us to know how to think about these things. And that's why we're studying them section by section. And chapter 7 deals with all the issues of singleness and marriage, marriage and divorce, divorce and remarriage, and all of these things require tremendous wisdom to sort out. It required wisdom to sort out in that time and in that situation. And it requires the same wisdom to sort out even today. And so as we read these verses, Paul is pointing us to God's wisdom on these issues. And like a good pastor and shepherd, he is scattering his counsel across a broad cross-section of the church, people in all kinds of different situations. So I just want to read verses 8 to 16 and, and kind of set it before us, and then we'll come back and look at what we need to complete this week. He says in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 7, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So as we look at this section, it's very clear that there's something in this passage for everybody in the church. There's something here for those who are married. There is something there here for those who are unmarried, those who are divorced, those who are widows and widowers, and those in marriages where your spouse is not a Christian. Paul addresses all of those different groups in these very, uh, this very short section. And the lingering question that they had asked that Paul is responding to is this, what do we do now that we're disciples of Christ. How, how, do we, how do we think about this? Should we get married if we're not married? Should we ever, as Christians, 
get divorced? What if our husband and wife is not a Christian? What if we have already been divorced as a Christian? And should we ever remarry? And if so, to whom and in what circumstances? And so all of these questions are swirling around in their minds. They don't have the scriptures in their entirety, so they don't know God's will on these issues, and that is why Paul is writing to them. And so Paul's response, we said last Sunday, to all of these questions of, you know, should we get married and divorced or whatever, his response to those questions is, is basically, it depends. It depends. See, Paul doesn't just teach and instruct and, and say, you must do this or not do that. He also applies God's wisdom to the various circumstances they were dealing with. And, um, and we need to keep that in mind as we work through this section. These issues of singleness and marriage, marriage and divorce, divorce and remarriage, are some of the most common and at times the most confusing matters that we will deal with as shepherds and pastors because life isn't always black and white. We like it to be that way. We wish it was that way, but it's just not. And so when you're talking about one man and one woman joined together in covenant commitment before the God of heaven and earth, and when you're talking about holding forth, as the marriage does, the mystery of the gospel to a lost and dying world, we can't be hasty in our counsel, and we don't want to be careless in what we say. A lot of marriage counsel, whether that's young people who are looking to get married for the very first time, or whether that's um, husbands or wives who've been married for many years, a lot of counseling in marriage is like trying to untie a gigantic knot. Um, you know, you ever tried to undo a really bad, uh, difficult knot? You pull on one thread, and then as you pull on one thread, the other thread on the other side gets cinched down, and it's just, it just is very convoluted at times. All to say, we need a special measure of God's grace, a double portion, if you will. We need the word of Christ to richly dwell within us, and we need a healthy serving of patience if we're going to sort it all out. Because life, unfortunately, is messy. Marriage is a sacred bond, we said, that is characterized by mutuality, exclusiveness, intimacy, and permanence. But it's not necessarily for everyone. And that's what Paul is pointing out here. So Paul has some important things to say about marriage and singleness and even divorce in these verses to help God's people walk in wisdom through all of life's complexities. And we want to unpack that a little bit. And we started to do that last Sunday. And if you were to distill down all of Paul's instruction in this chapter to a singular overarching principle, uh, was it, when it comes to singleness and marriage, Paul's instruction, the principle is this, stay where you are with some exceptions. Stay where you are with some exceptions. And the question they were wrestling is, what do we do with disciple, as disciples of Christ? And God's wisdom is, for most of you, not all, but most of us, stay where you are. Stay where you are. And we see that in verse 17. He says, only, the Lord, only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Verse 24, brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. So Christian discipleship doesn't give anyone permission to jettison marriage if they are married. And it doesn't require or mean you have to run out and get married if you aren't. That's his point. 
Through faith in Christ, and this is important, through faith in Christ, you and I can magnify and make much of God in whatever situation you find yourself. We need to understand that. That must be our consuming passion, to glorify God in whatever station of life we find ourselves in. And Paul says you can do that as a single person. You can do that as a married person. You can do that as a widow or a widower. You can do that in whatever situation you find yourself. So he began last Sunday, just by way of quick review, in verses 8 and 9, addressing those who have no marriage ties to the unmarried and the widows. We said this is a broad group. He's not just singling out one particular unmarried group. We, I think that the case can be made that he's addressing all who would fall under this umbrella. Widows and widowers, particularly widows, I think that's the point of verse 8, especially widows, and those who have never been married, those who have been divorced, those who have seen their spouses leave them, whatever the case may be, whoever is unmarried, Paul is addressing you, and he says, uh, and his counsel to them is this, stay where you are. Verse 8, I say to the unmarried and the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. So he's not married at this point. He says, listen, if you, uh, if you find yourself in this situation, that's good. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with being unmarried. If you're single, he says, don't feel pressure to run out and get married. But as soon as he gives the principle in verse 8, he gives the exception in verse 9. He clearly recognizes that this is not for everyone. But he says, if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. It's not something he would elevate to the level of command that everyone has to do this, but it is by way of understanding that not everyone has this gift of singleness. Singleness is good. Don't rush out and get married. But if you want to be married and you want to enjoy the blessings of physical and relational oneness that come in marriage, and cutting yourself off from that would, would lead to perpetual and overwhelming temptation, then it would be better for you when the opportunity arises to get married. So it's not one size fits all. This is God's counsel. It is not one size fits all. And we should never look down upon those who would choose a different path than we would. Secondly, we saw that Paul had something to say to the married folks in verses 10 and 11. He says, to the married, I give instruction, not the Lord. Excuse me, I give instruction, not I, but the Lord. Excuse me, this is Christ's instruction that the wife should not leave her husband. And obviously, in converse, the husband should not leave his wife. Paul has in view marriages where both partners are professing believers. And he says here uh, that they are not to divorce one another if they're married. He writes this to believers in a culture where divorce and remarriage were extremely common. I mean, it happened a lot, just like it does even today. Paul's instruction is simple, and it is radical. Stay married. <laughs> that is God's ideal, is that you would stay married. His design for marriage is one man and one woman for as long as you both shall live. But just as quickly, again, as he gives that counsel, he acknowledges God's ideal in verse 11, Paul acknowledges what's real. Some have already uh, moved forward in divorce to their believing spouse. And the Lord, uh, he says, has instruction for you. If you've already divorced your spouse, presumably understood in that is the, for the wrong reasons, you should remain unmarried or, if possible, reconcile to your spouse. That marriage has, in God's eyes, has not been terminated. 
And so you should either stay unmarried, lest you engage in adultery, or you need to reconcile with your spouse. So he acknowledges God's ideal, and he affirms what is real. Believers need to recognize both. Alongside that, he understands that divorce does happen, and in some situations, it may be unavoidable. So God's ideal may not be reality. So that's, that's where he's at in verses 10 and 11. And lastly, and this is what we started to unpack last Sunday, he had something to say to the unmarried widows, uh, excuse me, to the, he's already spoken to the unmarried wid- and widows, to the married, and now he speaks to those whose spouses are not Christians. And um, he says in verses 12 and 13 that everything hinges on the unbelieving spouses, um, uh, really what they would prefer. So all the counsel there revolves around the unbelieving spouse and what they would choose, verse 12. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, meaning that Christ did not speak to this issue specifically, that if any brother has a wife who is not an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. Conversely, in a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not, excuse me, not send her husband away. So if your unbelieving spouse wants to stay married and that brother or sister chooses that path, then you should not divorce your spouse. And he gives a powerful reason why in verse 14. He says, for the unbelieving husband is, and by implication, unbelieving wife, is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband, for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. So you're having been set apart to God as a Christian. You're having been sent apart to God, having been sanctified, having been washed clean by Christ's blood through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, uniquely purifies your home. There are temporal blessings, not salvation blessings. Your your, your spouse isn't saved because you're saved, nor are your children saved because you're saved. But there are real temporal blessings, real tangible spiritual benefits that flow out from your peace with God and your fellowship with God as a Christian. And uh, those blessings don't just terminate on you. they, They terminate on your whole household, your family. So Paul, what he does there is set forth a high and a hopeful view that the grace of God at work through you. Christ in you is solid ground for building into your home, into your marriage, even if your spouse is not a professing Christian. Even, if you're, even in your fighting and your frequent failures to live for Christ each day, take heart because those who don't know Christ are blessed because of you. So important. One Christian, warts and all, in the home, showers the entire home with God's grace. So that was where we left off last Sunday. With the unbeliever, excuse me, the believer with an unbelieving spouse who consents to stay in the marriage. But Paul has something to say to the unmarried uh, and, excuse me, the married whose spouses who are not content to stay. He has one more group here that he needs to address, and he does that in verses 15 and 16. He says, yet, if the unbelieving one, this unbelieving spouse, leaves, let him leave. 
The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So here Paul confirms that there are select situations where a Christian husband or a Christian wife may see their marriage dissolved and yet not be in disobedience to God's word. Remember we said earlier that God's ideal is one man and one woman for life. But God's ideal isn't always reality. And so we need to understand what the scriptures teach on this matter of divorce in order to, under, to ensure we don't fall short of what scripture teaches, nor go further than what scripture teaches. Both are wrong. We need to understand that. We can be in error, like the Corinthians and, and our culture as a whole, and treat marriage flippantly, like easy come, easy go. And that's the world we live in. But we can also be in error as Christians by making marriage such an absolute commitment that we strap burdens on our fellow brothers and sisters that even God himself does not intend for them to carry. Both of those extremes are wrong. And so the question becomes, what are the circumstances that God's word permits the marriage covenant to be dissolved. What are they? Because there are several in Scripture. Broadly speaking, there are three. The first is death. The second is immorality. And the third, which is in our text this morning, is abandonment. So the three, and that's our outline, the three uh, situations, circumstances, where God's word permits divorce is death, of a spouse, immorality by a spouse, or abandonment by a spouse. And I want to deal briefly with the first, and we'll take a little more time on the second and third. And that will help us finish out our study of this section. First, the most straightforward situation where a marriage covenant ends, dissolves, is when either the husband or the wife dies. This requires very little explanation, other than to say that as a Christian, when your spouse dies, whether they're a Christian or not, you are no longer bound to your spouse. Right? You're no longer bound to that marriage. You are free to remarry, or as Paul would encourage you, you're also free to remain single. It's up to you. There really isn't any controversy on that. Paul makes it clear at the end of the chapter in verses 39 and 40. He says, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to remarry to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Paul says the same thing in Romans uh, 7, in verses 2 and 3. If your spouse dies, the marriage covenant is dissolved, and you, Christian, are free to remarry with a clear conscience. You can do that. Uh, but the only requirement in verse 39 is that the person that you would marry would be a Christian. Only in the Lord. That's what he means there in verse 39. So when most of us were married, we probably had some kind of uh, vows that we took publicly before God and before other witnesses. And those vows had some version of the phrase, until death do us part. Well, that comes out of this instruction from Paul here in 1 Corinthians 7 and in Romans 7. You are free to remarry. Paul says you don't have to do that. 
And in his opinion, you'd probably be better or happier if you don't. But again, not everyone has the same gift from God. And he acknowledges that in the previous section. Remember, um, the pastor of a church I went to as a kid, when I lived up in New England, um, his wife died, the pastor's wife died, after uh, having cancer for several years. And uh, he had seven kids, but the two youngest ones were still teenagers, two girls. I remember because I went to school with them. And, uh, and it was a couple years after she passed away that he went and got remarried to another member, another gal in the church, whose husband had passed away. So they, she was a widow, he was a widower. She was a faithful member, she was a Christian. They got married. They, he got remarried, I guess. But for some reason, that caused a huge stir in the church. Um, and, uh, and it got to the point where some people were so upset that they left the church. And as you look at chapter 7, you think, why? Why would this be? He was a single father with two teenage daughters. He had a godly woman who was also single, and they wanted to get married and share life together. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Nothing at all. And it may not be what that family would have chosen to do, but it doesn't matter what you would do in that situation. If Scripture allows it, we need to recognize that that is perfectly fine. And he went on to have a wonderful second marriage. In fact, he was married to his second wife for 31 years until he passed away uh, just a couple of years ago at the age of 94. So the first situation where God's word permits marriage covenant to be dissolved is obviously at death. Second situation where God's word permits the marriage covenant to be dissolved through divorce is in the case of immorality by a husband or a wife. Now, there are two distinct times that in, during Jesus' earthly ministry that he addressed this issue of divorce. Um, the first was in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And the second was in response to some questions he received from the religious leaders, the religious authorities, in, um, later on in his ministry, where they tried to set a trap and discredit him. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 for a second. We need to look at this. Matthew 5, and look at verses 31 to 32. 31 to 32. Jesus is preaching and teaching in this section. Chapters 5 to 7 are known as the Sermon on the Mount. And in verse 31, he says, It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So one of the ways that the Pharisees and the larger system as a whole of Judaism in that day silenced their consciences and paraded their self-righteousness around was by taking God's standard, which is beyond our reach, and bringing it down to basically create God's standard, uh, a new standard for themselves, and to bring God's standard down. There's no need to trust God for the forgiveness of your sins if you can get there by yourself. That was their thought process. So Jesus exposes that the religious leaders had so lowered God's marriage standard of one man and one woman for life that they'd basically created a system of institutionalized adultery. Adultery, of course, was a clear violation of the law. We all know the Ten Commandments. The Seventh Commandment is what? 
thou shalt not commit adultery. They said, well, that's a problem. So the way they got around it was, let's just get divorced, right? If, I just, if I'm not married anymore, then I can marry somebody else. No adultery. So God's standard, easy. I can do this. But in that day, and, and we'll point this out in chapter 19 as well, a Jewish man could divorce his wife for practically any reason at all. Even as something as simple as they, they didn't like the way that they cooked dinner or something totally insignificant. And the reason, and what Jesus points out here, is that it's not just a matter of filing the right paperwork. That what he points out, the divorce and remarriage without a legitimate reason, and the reason he gives here is immorality, in that situation, you're committing adultery. It's assumed, of course, that both will, will get married again after their divorce because it was very uncommon for someone to stay unmarried. So the very, it's interesting and ironic that the very immorality that these Jewish men were trying to avoid externally by divorcing their innocent wives and sending them away so that they could marry somebody else was the very immorality they ended up committing. God's standard of holiness, we need to understand this, and Jesus is pointing this out here, is infinitely higher than our standard of holiness. And we don't get the option of creating our own standard of right and wrong. We don't get the option of creating our own standard of purity and impurity or faithfulness and unfaithfulness. And that's intentional. God's standard of holiness is intentionally high because it's meant to show us how unattainable it is. So that the law would serve, Paul says in Galatians 3, as our tutor to drive us to Christ. When you finally realize that you can't think or do or be righteous enough for God to accept you or to cover your past sins, then and only then will the open hand of faith reach out and desperately grab hold of Christ to receive his righteousness as our own. And even that act of faith, the scripture says, is an act of his mercy and his gracious gift. That is the lavish grace of God. But we, what we can't miss tucked away in these verses, in this indictment, because this would have indicted most of them, is God's grace. God does permit divorce in the very specific case where the husband or wife has been unfaithful to their spouse, engaging in immorality. This term, verse 32, of unchastity, is the, the word porneia, is the same word translated immorality in 1 Corinthians 5, which we just saw a few weeks ago, and again in chapter 6, speaks of a broad range of illicit sexual conduct, not just adultery. Prostitution, homosexuality, incest, Pornea can even be applied to deficiencies in one's moral character, such as an obsessive addiction to pornography. These acts of immorality, they don't necessitate divorce, but they are grounds for a believer to divorce their spouse without sin. You say, well, why does immorality open the door for divorce and not other things? Well, because immorality breaches the exclusivity of the marriage covenant. It breaks that one flesh relationship that God intended between a husband and a wife. We saw in chapter 6, it's uniquely, sexual sin is uniquely defiling and destructive. 
So divorce then allows the innocent party a fresh opportunity to enjoy the mutuality and intimacy, exclusivity, and the permanence of marriage the way God intends. The sinning spouse has destroyed that by their immorality. God in his grace and mercy restores what was taken away to the innocent party in that situation. Why should a wife or a husband be forever bound to a life of singleness and isolation? Because their spouse violated their covenant commitment in marriage. It makes no sense. Look with me at Matthew 19. So this is the second incident where the Gospels record Jesus speaking to the issue of divorce. And Matthew 19 helps us understand how what's ideal and what's real, how those two things complement one another. They don't contradict each other. Look at verse uh, chapter 19. The Pharisees are questioning Jesus. He is leaving Galilee, and he's coming down to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So this is further south. And there's this huge crowd that's accompanying him. And in verse 3, says, some of the Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? So they're trying to trap him. They're trying to discredit Jesus because that was the teaching of the day. And they wanted to find out, is it permissible for someone to divorce their spouse? Notice Jesus points out what is ideal in verses 4 to 6. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Of course, they had read that. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So this is God's ideal. One man and one woman for life. Paul, uh, Jesus says that's how it was from the beginning. The Pharisees knew that Jesus was going to say that because they'd heard him teach already, presumably maybe even somewhere else. And so they're ready with their gotcha question in verse 7. And they pull out Deuteronomy 24 and verses 1 to 4, and they respond, Well... Why then did Moses command, give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? So they throw that back in Jesus' face. And their expectation is that, you know, aha, we got you. But notice Jesus points out what's ideal. He's already done that. But he also understands what is real. And that is that men's hearts are hard. And so his response in verse 8 is telling. He says to them, Moses said this because of your hardness of heart. He permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. He points out that God's word doesn't commend divorce. It doesn't command divorce in the case of immorality, but it does permit divorce because God knows how wicked and unrelenting man's sinful heart can be. So Moses permitted a way for the innocent party to dissolve the marriage without incurring guilt when their spouse has been unfaithful, but in no way does that contradict God's ideal, which is from the beginning. 
what's ideal then and what is real complement each other in Jesus' teaching. And Paul is making the same case. This is important to point out. And we need to make this as we, as we go through this text. Just because your spouse has sinned against you in, by being unfaithful does not mean you have to get a divorce. It's not an automatic ticket out the door. But if they're unrelenting or unrepentant in their immorality, which is not that uncommon, if their heart is hardened in unbelief, God in his grace and mercy gives relief, then you may choose to divorce and remarry without sin. This is where I believe God's wisdom and the help of godly counsel become so incredibly important. It's so important because you need to bring others into that situation to understand what's happening. You need dispassionate and mature eyes to help you make a wise decision. Maybe you stay and that would probably be preferable, but maybe you don't. It just depends. But God does not force a wife or a husband to stay bound in a marriage that's been torpedoed by their spouse's immorality. That's the point Paul's making, or Jesus is making, and Paul's reiterating. There's a third situation where God's word permits the marriage covenant to be dissolved through divorce, and that is abandonment. So death is the first, immorality is the second. The third, and that's in our text in verses 15 and 16, is abandonment. Verse 15, yet, Jesus says, if an unbelieving spouse leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. He says, if your spouse is not a Christian and they're willing to stay in the marriage, let them stay. Allow your gospel light to shine in your home in hopes that God's kindness through you might lead them to repentance. He highlighted that in verse 14. That's if, if they consent to do that. But he says, if your spouse isn't a believer and they don't want to stay and they want out, he says, you need to let them go. Let them go. And the prevailing principle that, got, that governs really verses, both situations, verse, the situation in verses 12 to 14 and this situation in verse 15 and 16, the prevailing principle is this. God calls us to peace. He calls us to peace. He calls you and I Christians to a life where peace holds court. Romans 12 verse 18 says, If possible... So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And that peace is, is, is more holistic than just an absence of conflict. It has the idea of a complete cessation of hostilities and one of uh, harmony and reconciliation. But for some marriages, the unbelieving spouse simply will not consent to live at peace with their Christian wife or their Christian husband. And if that's the choice that they have made, then that's the choice that they've made. It's in the middle voice here in verse 15. Let him leave. Or if he unbelieving one chooses to leave, that's in the middle voice. It has the idea that they have, they've taken themselves out of the situation. 
Paul's instruction is for you, believer, not to stand in the way of that. In a situation like that, divorce is permissible, and the Christian spouse is not in sin. Even under the Old Covenant, God's law granted unconditional release to a wife whose husband refused to provide for her basic needs. He couldn't just abandon her and leave her in limbo. You can read all about it in Exodus 21, verses 10 and 11. In fact, some have argued that Paul's counsel here in verses 15 and 16 has that case law situation in the back of his mind. You say, well, wouldn't it be better for that wife or husband to stick it out? I mean, Paul just said in verse 14, if their home is, is uh, if you're the only Christian in the home, well, you bring a gospel light to the home that uh, wouldn't be there otherwise. So, so shouldn't they want to stick it out to, marry, uh, to see if they can win them over to Christ? Well, as ideal as that might seem, Paul points out what is real in verse 16. How do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? See, as close as Paul's heart is to the missionary endeavor, his heart is even closer to the reality that everything is in God's control. With God... Even what might look like failure, that can be redeemed and turned into good. If they want out, you have to leave it in God's hands. No need for despair, hopeless despair, and on the flip side, no need for prideful presumption. You just don't know. It's really an open statement in verses 16, verse 16. There's been debates over the years. Is this a pessimistic view? Is this an optimistic view? And depending on how you look at it, you might say one or the other. I believe it's intentionally ambiguous and left open. Paul says it's all in the hands of God. Criticism, bickering, frustration, constant conflict in a marriage where the unbelieving spouse is being held against their will, that Paul says, destroys the harmony and the peace that God calls us to as Christians. And so you can let them go. You don't have to let God, excuse me, you can't, you have to let God follow your spouse's soul with the gospel message. Trusting that he'll use somebody else in some other context to call them to repentance and faith. Now, in a situation like that, can the believing spouse then remarry in a situation where they've been abandoned? I believe the scriptures teach, yes, they can. I think the the overarching principle in scripture is wherever divorce is permitted by God, remarriage is permitted by God. So if if the divorce happens for a biblically legitimate reason, remarriage is possible as well. I don't think it's any different in the situation of abandonment even though Paul doesn't speak to it specifically in, this, uh, in these verses. So three scenarios, death, immorality, and abandonment. I think one of the things that I appreciate about Paul in this chapter, and, and we'll get into chapter 8 and 9, and God's word as a whole is that it deals with life honestly. You know, God's ideal is it's beyond our reach, and yet 
the scriptures are clear. God is holy, and yet we understand that we are wretched sinners. God demands perfect obedience, and even our most righteous deeds are nothing more than a polluted garment. And at the same time, God is gracious and compassionate, merciful and abounding in loving kindness. So we come to him then with humble hearts, and we trust in his son, his life, his death, his resurrection, and we look to him for the forgiveness of our sins. He makes us, by faith, his beloved children, giving us the assurance that we belong to him. That's the hope of the gospel. That's what we cling to. And in this sin-cursed world, the hope of the gospel helps us because we, when we don't have to fight for assurance, we are able to fight with assurance. And we can glorify God in our singleness, and we can glorify God in our Christian marriages, and we can glorify God in our marriage when our spouse is not a Christian and they want to stay, and we can glorify God in our marriage if our spouse chooses not to stay. No matter what situation we find ourselves, God's grace and mercy in Christ can wrap its arms around all of life's complexities. And that's what Paul's getting at in this section. Only as the Lord, verse 17, only as the Lord is assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk, Paul says, and so I direct in all the churches. Let's pray. Father, thank you again that your grace is sufficient. You know, we forget sometimes in all of life's complexities, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that your grace is more than abundant. What you call us to do, you empower us to do. And Lord, if there's any here this morning whose hearts are heavy, feeling overwhelmed, as if they can't possibly move forward in their situation, I pray that you would work on their heart and help them to remember what Paul has taught us, that you are a God with ideals, that there are things that you wish and desire, and yet there's this reality that we live in a sin-cursed world, and your ideal may not be what is real in our situation. And we can live between those two poles. I pray, Lord, that you would work on hearts, draw them, sinners to yourself, and strengthen God's people to live and glorify you in whatever situation they find themselves. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.